Hey everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Um, We are here with how many questions do I have? I think I have 10 or 11. 10 today. 10 are prepared. Um, So if you are new, welcome. I answer questions from you based on the ones that you ask under the community tab within my podcast channel. So if you are listening to this audio only, when you're finished, you can head over to YouTube, um, YouTube and put in the search bar opinions that don't matter. This channel will pop up and you'll see my podcast, Ask Katie Anything, as well as the one I do with my husband called Opinions That Don't Matter. And you can click the tab community and you can go in there on Mondays around, I don't know, noon, maybe sometimes 10 a.m. I post asking for your questions for this podcast. You can pop in there, ask your questions or thumbs up someone else's that's very similar to yours because the way that I choose them is based on the number of thumbs ups. So the ones that get the most likes, then are placed in the podcast. And I do my best to scroll through them and find the ones with the most likes, but sometimes they'll bury one like deep in the hundreds of questions and it'll have a bunch and I won't see it. And I don't know how to filter for that. It just allows me to filter for most relevant or recent and that's not helpful. So I'm sorry if I missed yours, feel free to ask it again and let us know that it had a lot of thumbs up last times and then last time, wow, too many S's there. Um, And then people will, you know, like it again, and hopefully we'll find it and be able to put it in a podcast. So without further ado, let's get into those questions. These are all great. You guys always have such great questions. So thank you for sending them in and taking the time to do that. So question number one says, hi, Katie, how do you deal with feeling discouraged when symptoms of mental illness return despite doing everything to prevent it? I have been taking medication for depression for over a year and consistently going to therapy, but my symptoms seem to be returning full force and it has left me feeling like I should just stop trying. Any thoughts on this would be appreciated. Thanks. I thought this was a great question because this happens to a lot of us, especially this year. And that's what I really kind of want to talk about is the fact that we can do everything we know we need to do to keep ourselves feeling good. That's why I like to compare mental illness with physical illness. I can make sure when it comes to not wanting to catch a cold, let's say, I can make sure I'm sleeping enough. I can make sure that I'm trying to, you know, I'm eating properly, drinking enough water, getting my vitamins and nutrients and whatever. And you know, exercising, whatever it is I'm supposed to do to keep my immune system up, taking my probiotics maybe. I can do all these things. However, I can still get sick. 
because sometimes my body's just not able to fight off whatever it is. Maybe it doesn't know what it is. It hasn't encountered that before. Um, I know we're going through a pandemic now, so a lot of people are catching the coronavirus or COVID-19 because coronaviruses, there's a lot of them, by the way, if you didn't know that. Um, but COVID-19 is something that people, you know, we're still taking care of ourselves and we're still catching it. And so the same goes for our mental health. We can be doing all of the things that we're supposed to do. And those are the things we can control, Right. But there are things that are out of our control that can, that can then lead to us feeling bad again. Like right now, this year has been really rough because of the coronavirus that I think a lot of us are feeling super stressed out. And I would argue that a lot of us, even if we didn't have any depressive symptoms before, are experiencing, experiencing them now. And so regardless of, you know, how much effort, unfortunately, that we're putting into our mental health and maintaining it, we can still feel terrible and still be pulled into it. And so I don't want you to think that you're not doing enough. I just want you to know that this year is particularly difficult and it's okay for us to feel bad, but it's that feeling discouraged that we kind of need to process. And so part of it would be, part of my advice for this would be talking to your therapist about it and maybe being open to increasing your medications is something you should talk with your psychiatrist or your um whoever your medical professional is that you're seeing, your regular doctor, whoever's prescribing it, but telling them about this because I've had a lot of patients and even friends and family members during this year have to increase the dosage or change their medication or add another medication to what they're taking because it's not enough to help them or to keep them feeling good throughout this year because it's been so trying. Like I think like I said, I think all of us are suffering this year. A lot of people are suffering from a low-grade depression or symptoms of anxiety that maybe they never felt before. And so don't think that this means you're not doing enough or that what you, the tools and things that you're using aren't working for you. They're working. This year's just fucking terrible. And it might take a little more support right now to get us through it. That doesn't mean all is lost. That doesn't mean that you you know, should just give up or stop trying. What you were doing was working. And I would encourage you also something that's helpful. And this is why I tell people to journal all the time is go back in your journals if you have them, or even ask your therapist to read back like how you were, what you're working on like months ago, or maybe not even months, maybe a year because of the coronavirus. If we looked at what we were working on in like February of, of this year, I guarantee that you would recognize all of the amazing strides you've taken in your own recovery. And I think you would feel a lot better and, and not so discouraged. It's hard in the moment when we were not, we don't like feeling depressed. Nobody likes feeling like that. We don't like feeling like shit in general. And if we feel that coming back and we're like, what the hell I've been working so hard and what, what's going on? I thought this was working. I guess it's not. And we think it's, we blame it on ourselves rather than recognizing that hey, this year is shit, things are hard, maybe I just need a little extra support to get me through. That doesn't mean this isn't working or that I haven't gotten better. And if we can't do that for ourselves in our own self-talk, it can be helpful to have your therapist bring up the notes and what you're working on like pr prior to COVID. And you will be very surprised and hopefully somewhat delighted in how far you've come. And so I know this is difficult. I know especially depression, it, the discouragement can be palpable, can just feel like oh, so heavy and everywhere we look. Um, but tell your therapist about it and talk to your psychiatrist or your medical doctor, whoever's prescribing that medication. Because like I said, we're going to need to make some adjustments for this year. Um, I've definitely had a di I've had a tough time this entire year and a difficult time managing the grief 
and my expectations. And then I just recorded a video that'll probably go live next week, I think, about feeling really disappointed, which is kind of like discouraged, just feeling like down and, and like, ugh, like it's, it's sad and depressing for Sean and I to stay here for Christmas and New Year's by ourselves, but it's also sad and depressing for if we went to uh, either of our families to see in Montreal or in Washington and then got someone sick or we got sick, it, it, there's just no winning. And so it feels, it, it can feel very bad and it can feel like we have no control and we don't know how to manage it. And so anyway, I bring that up just to let you know you're not alone. A lot of us are feeling discouraged, disappointed and upset right now. Talk to your therapist about it. Know that it's okay to increase sessions or medication or things during this time until we get through it because it will get better. And so, uh, yeah, those are my that those are my thoughts. Like reflecting on how far you've come, talking to your therapist about it, maybe increasing medication or support in one way or another, and then you know it's okay also just to allow yourself to feel it because it's hard. It's a bad time. It, it's it's been a bad. I don't even like to lump it and say it's been a bad year because I'm sure there's some silver lining we can find. But the holidays are particularly difficult. In general, I have patients, regardless of COVID, I have a ton of patients every year who have some kind of relapse this time of year, whether it's into depression or anxiety symptoms, maybe it's into drugs or alcohol or eating disorder behaviors. It can be really stressful and stress takes its toll. And it's not something to overlook or be like, but it's just stress. I should be able to pull myself out. Stop shooting on yourself. This year is a rough year. You know what you should be doing? being okay with where you're at because we're all just surviving. Okay. Moving on to question number two says, hi, Katie, why is it so hard for me to bear my therapist's silence in sessions? I don't know why this this question kind of made me giggle. Is it part of me wanting to hear her opinion so I don't have to be confronted with my own thoughts? I always get anxious and insecure whenever the silence gets too long. And I always fear I said something stupid. It's it's so funny because this is so common. All I don't think I've had a patient ever who didn't hate silence in sessions. And even as a therapist, it's something that we have to not practice, but ooh, I feel like I'm going to sneeze. You guys, I keep fighting it. My nose has been itching. Um, so sorry if I sneeze. But it's something that we tr- we work on and we talk about in our training is like being okay with silence and knowing that sometimes because sometimes silence is necessary for the patient to take the time to process what just happened or what was just said and come up with an answer also like if we're asking a really tough question I don't want to talk over my patient I want to give them the time to think about it and thoughtfully respond I don't want to make them feel like they have to like come up with an answer like quick 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 you know that's not what that's not how it works okay and so or how it's supposed to work, I guess is what I should say. And so we we have to be okay with silence. And I have to be honest, it took me a while, but I'm fine with it now. And I mean, obviously I've been practicing for, I don't even know how many years, like 11 years, 12 years. I don't even know. You guys probably know. It, I was practicing before I started the channel. So I guess I mean, I've been doing the channel for nine years. So yeah, probably like 11 years. Anyway, um, it's, you slowly get used to it. And the reason that it's probably difficult for you is <laughs> could being confronted, like you said, so I don't have to be confronted with my own thoughts. I think it's more of that. I don't really think the silence makes us is be, I don't think the discomfort with the silence is because we want to hear our therapist's opinion. I think it's really because we don't want to have to think our thoughts and feel our feelings. We would rather just distract with other thoughts and other things. And I have patients, especially my anxious patients, will fill an entire session rapid fire talking, answering all this stuff. And 
it's all because they don't want to feel that anxiety. We don't want to slow down. Feel the quiet. Have to acknowledge how we feel in our body, what our thoughts are, what we feel about those thoughts and the judgment that we have or placed on ourselves or other things in our environment. And so that's really what it is. And I would bring this up to your therapist if you haven't already, but still it it's worth a conversation because it, it's it's part of it's it's part of the therapeutic process is to be okay with not being okay and talking about it. And that's really what's happening, right? Is that we're not okay with the silence. As it happens each and every session, we probably dread it more and more. And it could, I've had patients even who the silence has pushed them into dissociation because they'll, the thoughts start running, right? Oh my God, I said something stupid. Oh my God. Um, I, you know, I don't like the way that I feel. I feel this in my body. Oh my God, I'm overwhelmed. My system get overwhelmed. Blah, 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 blah. We spiral out and pull our brain pulls the ripcord. Yeah. And we we go into dissociation. We could have a panic attack. It could be a lot of different things that the judgment spiral or the, you know, pit of despair that we can fall into because of the silence is important to address in therapy, to let our therapist know that that's happening, to let our therapist know that we don't like it and we feel anxious and insecure. Um, and just being open to talking about it. And I know just, I know this isn't, you're not going to want to hear this, but your therapist is probably going to hear you out, talk about it, process it with you. And then we're going to slowly expose you to that silence and get you to a point where you can fight back against the judgmental, uh, you know, negative thoughts that are swirling in your head. And that's hard. And I think that's why a lot of us have trouble at night. I don't know if anybody can, you know, relate to this, but a lot of my patients and even myself, I'll say that all day I'm doing fine because I got distractions. I got to film this podcast. I got to reply to these emails. I need to prep this other video because I'm working on this series, blah, 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 right? We all have this shit we got to do. I should do laundry, yada, yada. Then I get ready and we're watching TV shows. I'm distracted by that. I'm texting people and then it's time for bed and I lay down and I put my phone down and I don't have any other distractions. And then what happens? All those thoughts, all those feelings, all that worry and upset comes up because a lot of you told me that it's like the 10.30 p.m. to 2, 3 a.m. when it's the roughest. And so that's why therapy is there. It's a great place to practice what we're probably already struggling with at night. Or we maybe we run ourselves so ragged. I have patients who've done this too, or we run ourselves so ragged that when we lay down, we just legitimately fall asleep. Boom, we're so wiped. So that we don't even, again, we're distracting and keeping ourselves so busy. We don't have time to address how we feel. And therapy is not that. It's supposed to slow down, allow you to feel the feelings as uncomfortable as they are, like ugh, feeling those feelings. But we want to do that and practice that. And that's the safest place to do it, to tell our therapist what's coming up for us. What are we thinking about? What's happening? What are the thoughts? What are the feelings? They're going to want you to track them and write them out and be more aware of them. Um, and all of that is very positive. I know it feels bad. I'm not pretending that it doesn't, but I'm just saying that it does. It is a good thing. It does help us move forward and grow and feel better. So stick with it. It's it's very it's human nature to want to move away from uncomfortable emotions and you know feelings or thoughts, but healing comes through us being okay to feel it and to kind of lean into it. And I know that sucks, and I know it's hard. I'm not making light of it, but I'm just saying that it's kind of like that. I talked about this on a live stream, and I mentioned it um, 
ever so slightly in my book that's coming out next year about like the going on a bear hunt when you're in school. I don't know if anybody knows that going on a bear hunt, going on a bear hunt. Part of that little child childhood song, I guess you call it, is like you can't go around it. You can't go under it. You can't go over it. You got to go through it. And I know I mentioned that a lot in relation to therapy and, and therapeutic tools, but that's exactly what it is. We can't go around this. We can't ignore it. We have to go through it. We have to feel the anxiety. We have to acknowledge the insecurity and what comes up for us and, and dig into where that, what the, what the root of that is. Where does that come from? So that we can heal it because my hypothesis is that that is part of that like root of your main issue and what you really should be working on in therapy. I think we're getting closer to that root. We're working our way down that tree, right? We have all these symptoms that we're trying to manage, but we're as we work into this anxiety and insecurity, we're getting closer and closer to that root. So stick with it, talk about it, be okay, you know, slowly get more and more comfortable with the silence. It's important. Kind of like when you used to go to the movies and be like, silence is golden. Say, so remember that? It that is um that pertains to therapy as well. <laughs> that should be our new motto. Okay. Excuse me. Sorry. I'm a little stuffy today. Not not cold related. I think it's because our weather has shifted. And that happens to me. Okay. Enough about me. Let's get into question number three. And that question is, hi, Katie, why do I feel so responsible for other people's words and actions? I'm often on edge when around others because I feel responsible for their words and actions as if they say or do something. And if they say or do something offensive or hurtful, I can feel super guilty. We'll get into this. This is a good question. I also often feel super responsible for how others feel. Wow, it's a lot of responsibility. If someone is in a bad mood or they are angry and sad, I constantly think about what I must have done to cause it, even when it's completely illogical. For example, if I haven't been around my mom for a few days and I go home and she's in a mood, <clears throat> I immediately blame myself, even though I haven't even been at home. My therapist noticed this at the end of our last session, asked me to be curious about it this week. I love your therapist and I love that language, but I really have no idea why I feel this way. Any insight would be appreciated. Hope you're well, love from Ireland. Oh my God, this is so common. And I have a lot of thoughts about it and a lot of tools and things that I think you should use, even if not all of what I say resonates with you. Okay. So we can feel really overly responsible for other people's actions and words for a lot of reasons. The main crux of this is boundaries or lack of boundaries. Meaning that when we grew up, we probably, we could have been told by our family that we were like, we were responsible for other people. Like parents can say some really fucked up shit to their kids. Like parents can say things like, oh, you're the only reason that I'm happy today, or you're the only thing I look forward to, or, oh my God, thank you so much for doing that. You know that you're the only way that I can get through my days. And parents might not realize what kind of weight that places on their children or what kind of emotional responsibility that gives to them. But it's really unhealthy and we should stop saying stuff like that because we can acknowledge a child or a person in our life doing something wonderful, be like, oh my God, that totally made my day. Thank you so much. That made things so much easier. And I really appreciate you and all the effort you put in. So there are ways to address it and to show appreciation without it completely overstepping any boundaries and putting emotional responsibility that is only our own. Because here's the kicker of all this. Like, if this doesn't even make sense to you, if you're like, what are you talking about? If we tell someone else they're responsible for how we feel, we're lying to them. We're blatantly lying because no one can make us feel any kind of way 
we are the ones that are responsible for that. And we're the ones that actually allow ourselves to get into a mood or a funk would would okay if we just consider this how many of you have had people you know try to make things right or try to say oh i'm so sorry i didn't even realize that was how you you know experienced that i i didn't mean for that to happen people can apologize and apologize and apologize but if we are stubborn like i i used to be this way and i still have a little flavor of this and have to be very aware is that if i've already made up my mind that i'm not going to like i'm not going to accept their apology and i'm not going to forgive them then they can say whatever they want but i've already decided that i'm still mad right we've all done that we've all stonewalled given silent treatment there's nothing someone can do to make us feel better right we all agree therefore how can we make someone feel good how can we ensure someone doesn't get upset? We can't. I talked about in the uh, previous podcast about how control is like an illusion. We don't actually have control over ourselves even that much. We have some control, but I think, you know, like I said in that podcast, is like people, there's that joke that like, you know, we make plans and God laughs at us kind of thing. I think I mentioned that, but that's like a saying because it's real. Okay. And so to think that we have any kind of control over someone else, that thought, that belief system, it's, it's not just thoughts, it's actually a belief system we have came from somewhere. And my gut tells me that it's probably from your childhood and the way that your parents engaged with you. And something that was either said or repeatedly demonstrated through behavior. Um, so I'd be curious about that. That's what I'd actually want you to dig into is like, how do your parents talk to you about like, like thanking you for things, acknowledging things that you've did, or even punishing you when they feel upset when you were a kid, or if you hurt their feelings or did something hurtful in general or broke something or anything, how did they interact with you about that? Okay. So there's that component. And that's my gut is like, I think it has to do with lack of boundaries. And I'll get into why and maybe some reasons behind that. But so there's that. Also, it could be that we are a highly sensitive person. And I have a video about this because I believe that I fall into this realm. I don't necessarily think that I'm like a super empath or something like that. Empaths can, being an empath is a superpower and I'm definitely empathic. However, empaths can have a tough time with this. Like this is something that we can struggle with. So you could be a highly sensitive person or an empath and you can read about those things. Um, and I'll have a video going up soon about pros and cons of being empathic and like where it's a, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. But this could be you, meaning that we're reading scenarios and situations and people and we get we get a feeling like, I'll be honest, I can just feel it off of people if they're in a bad mood or if something's upsetting them. And it can be really hard to tolerate when we're that person, when we're highly sensitive or empathic. Okay. And so that could be coming out as well. Here's the kicker though. Most of us, not all of us, but a huge swath of people who find themselves to be empaths or highly sensitive people come from families of complete dysfunction. And what I mean by that is that a lot of us come from families where, like in my family, for instance, fighting and arguing never really happened. So I never fully became okay with arguments or raising voices. It's very uncomfortable for me. Um, so I have a, a a difficulty in expressing intense emotions. Does that make sense? It's never, it was never shown to me as a kid. So I had to practice as an adult learning how to healthfully express anger and have disagreements without exploding or shutting down. Okay. So there's kind of my dysfunction from the way that I was raised. And we all have different things that have happened, but I find people who 
have a difficult time with any boundaries, feel each people's feelings, feel responsible for other people's feelings, have one of two things going on. We either have a parent who has borderline personality disorder, or we have a parent who has narcissistic personality disorder. And I know I'm not trying to diagnose your parents, but usually parents like that have their own ish going on, right? If we if we have a parent who's a narcissist, that means that everything's about them. We They don't take any personal responsibility. People who are narcissists can't apologize usually. They often don't go into therapy and get help. Some do, but it's not very common. And I feel like people are like, especially their children are extensions of themselves. Therefore, there's no autonomy. There's no independence. So you're responsible for them. That's how it's uh, told to you and demonstrated to you. And they can get really upset out of nowhere if someone just doesn't give them the attention that they think they deserve. Like if you had, if you did really well in school and got an award, a narcissistic parent would probably be upset about that in some way and be passive aggressive and maybe ruin the party that they, you know, that you'd wanted to have or um, not show up or be late or make you run late for it. There can be things that they do. And borderline personality disorder parents tend to be, you know, they struggle with emotion regulation, right? Because we're super sensitive and everything feels so intensely. So we can erupt out of nowhere. And it's because of this small perceived slight that maybe we made assumptions about because when we're when we have borderline personality disorder again we're so sensitive that we can take things from 0 to 100 really quick which is why emotion regulation is a huge part of that treatment anyways all of these behaviors whether it's a narcissistic parent or a borderline parent that can leave us as children growing up in that kind of environment feeling like we're walking on eggshells. We're always just waiting for something bad to happen. We want to do everything just perfectly because we don't want to set them off. We aren't sure what makes them upset or not. And that makes that causes us to be really, uh, to spend a lot of time and energy trying to read people and situations and emotions and make a lot of assumptions. And so that's like to this person's uh question, they said they feel super responsible for how others feel. If someone's in a bad mood or they're angry or sad, I constantly think about what I must have done. Again, I tried to do everything just perfectly. I must have done something wrong to create that feeling in someone else. We aren't able to recognize that we don't have that kind of power. We can't actually cause someone to do, to feel that way, act that way, you know, unless we there's actually an egregious action and we've recognized like, oh, well, I, I just shouted at that person. Of course, they're upset, right? We just always assume that no matter what's happening in the world with anybody around us, we're to blame for any upset. And so anyways, I, I know I'm kind of rambling on this, but I would encourage you to pick up the book, Stop Walking on Eggshells. I just actually got myself a new copy because I think I must have lent it out and I couldn't find it the other day. So have another copy. But I think regardless of whether your mom or dad or anybody was narcissistic or has borderline personality disorder, I think that this book will really help you. It will help you better understand why maybe you feel this way and feel responsible and and helping you navigate the fact that you are your own autonomous and individual person and you don't have the power to control how other people react, respond, or anything in life. You only have the power to control your own response and reactions. And even then, like, that's it. Like, when we talk about having control is like an illusion. We don't, other than just how we respond and react in our environment and we get to choose how we feel and what we think, what we allow in our head, that's really it. Outside of that, a lot of things are out of our control. So anyways, those are just kind of my thoughts. And I know it's a little bit rambling, a little bit scattered, but it's really, 
it's, it's something that you can stop. It's just recognizing when we're doing it and why. And arguing back, like a lot of what you're going to have to do, a lot of the, the work is to notice when you're blaming yourself for, like you said, you haven't been around your mom for days, you go home, she's in a mood, and then you like blame yourself. Well, I haven't even been home. So how in the world did I upset her? So I check my facts. So I recognize that I'm doing this thing that's illogical. That's what you're saying. It's even when it's completely illogical. If we can recognize that it's illogical, then I want you to check your facts. And every time that thought pops back in, that's like, you must have done something, you're going to have to thought stop with, no, I already considered it. I checked my facts. I haven't seen her in a few days. I have no current facts to support that thought. So that's a lie. You have to stop. Like, don't let those thoughts live in your head rent free. We have to push them out. They're just bullshit. But we have to acknowledge them and check our facts so that we can prove to ourselves that it's bullshit. And so it's coming up with a more balanced thought. So if I feel or if I think, right, if I'm like, I'm responsible for how my mom feels, but I've checked my facts and I know I'm not, then my more balanced thought could be, you know what, it's completely possible that I had nothing to do with this and something else is going on, right? It's pos- It's quite possible that my mom just had like a real shit day or it's quite possible that 2020's put, you know, taken its toll on my mom as well, right? Those are more balanced thoughts. It has nothing to do with us. It's possible it's this or it's possible it's something else completely. And that's all true, right? So anyways, I hope that that helps. I hope that gives you a little bit of insight, a little bit of understanding. Obviously, you know what, what they say, like, uh, eat what you want, spit out the bones kind of thing. So like, take what you want, leave the rest, whatever's helpful for you, take it. If some things I said are completely off base, you can leave it. But I really think even if your parent is not uh, borderline or narcissistic, that book will have some tools and helpful insights for you. I think a lot of you'd be like, yeah, oh my God, I feel that way too. Yeah. Um, and then I have videos about boundary setting and stuff like that. So hopefully those are helpful as well. Okay, moving on to question number four says, hey there, what is an appropriate gift for my therapist for the holidays? What gifts have you gotten and what gifts have you had to decline? So I usually try to cut this off at the past. I have conversations. Um, I don't have any new patients right now, but I have conversations in usually early November about holiday gift giving. And an appropriate gift, gift for therapists is more of like a thoughtful gift. So gifts that I have received and accepted are baked goods, um, tons of cookies, uh, muffins, bread, all sorts of stuff, you guys, any kind of baked good is totally appropriate and fine. Um, tons of cards and letters. I get those usually Christmas cards and stuff like that from my patients. I get a ton of those. Anything over like that kind of nominal amount of money spent, like maybe if someone gave me a scarf, I'd maybe allow it. I haven't had a bunch of gifts because I talked to them. And this is th- something you want to ask your therapist as well, because everybody's different. Some therapists have a strict no gift you know, kind of rule. I can't imagine them turning down a card. Cards are, it's just a thoughtful thing. And I think that's fine. But the reason that gifts are kind of funny is we don't want you to spend a lot of money and give us something um, and feel like we owe you or feel like you have to get us something. You know what I mean? It just can, can be a weird dynamic. And so we just have to be protective of that and make sure that we're, we're not messing the relationship up in any way. And so as a kind of ethical stance, most therapists only accept like nominal gifts. So things like cards and baked goods are totally fine. Or something small, like maybe like I said, a scarf or a pair of gloves. I wouldn't, I wouldn't really want my patient to ever spend honestly anything on me. But let's say like, I don't know, 20, 30 bucks, and then anything more, like if you get in a $50, it just starts to feel not 
good and I would have to say no. But because I have this conversation with my patients and I just tell them, I, I want you to know that I do not accept, you know, gifts. If you want to offer a small token, like a card or something like that, or baked goods are fine. And I just talk to them about it because I don't want them to try to buy me. Like I've had, <laughs> I've had colleagues of mine where patients try to give them like a brand new cashmere sweater and they're like, I, I love it and am so grateful and thank you for thinking of me. However, I can't accept it, you know, and then you feel bad because they've spent this money or they've tried to give somebody else some tickers, tickets to the Lakers. It's just things that we can't accept. And um, and so, yeah, talk to your therapist, ask them. But I think cards and baked goods are always accepted and always fine. And because I had that conversation early on, I haven't had to decline a certain gift before. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have had patients try to like, want to give me like a bonus. And I'm like, that's not how this works. You can't do that. You know, it's okay. I, you know, I did. Cause I'll be like, you came to the, that meeting with me and advocated at my work or whatever. And I'm like, well, that's like, that's part of my job. And that's part of, you know, you paid my hourly rate. That's just what it is. So anyways, those are things that you need to talk about with your therapist. But again, cards and baked goods always accepted, I think. Okay. Question number five, and this one's a good one too. You guys, these questions are all so great. It says, hi, Katie, I'm a frontline healthcare worker and I am so beyond exhausted. I'm not sure how much more I can take. It is so heartbreaking to watch people so sick and dying every shift and it seems nothing is helping. I started having panic attacks at work, but I cannot take off my mask for my entire 12 hours except for one short break because it's too dangerous and the risk is too high. So I try calming techniques, but they aren't helping me anymore. I'm in therapy and it does help, but every shift is still so brutal. I have PTSD from childhood abuse and the trapped feeling of this pandemic is making my PTSD symptoms so much worse and it feels like there's no escape from any of it. So many of my coworkers are sick with COVID and my boss is now intubated on a ventilator. I'm surrounded by the virus and it's suffocating. I feel like I'm drowning and it's so hard to breathe when you feel like you're underwater and I'm terrified. Terrified that I'll bring this virus home to my kids and family. Terrified I won't live to see 2021. I'm in my 30s, but so many of my, but so are many of my sick patients. Yeah, I had a friend I went to call or to high school with recently have to be placed on a ventilator. Um, it, and so, yeah, I'm 37. It seems there's no end in sight. Even on my days off, I can hardly force myself to get out of bed and I'm having nightmares every night. I feel so trapped. Is there anything I can do to help me get through this really difficult time? First of all, and I know you've probably heard this a ton, but I'm so grateful to you and the work that you do and the sacrifice that you're making to save people. I, I just, there's no way and I don't want to cry. So I kind of pull it together, but there's no words I can say to, to let you know how grateful I am for that because it is heartbreaking. I can't even watch the news. It's so overwhelming. Um, okay. Pull it together, Katie. We got this. Um, and, it, and I think that that's what gets people angry about people going out and seeing family and stuff, you know, when they don't have to, when it's not hurting their mental health is like, no, you're, you, you see the ripple effect of what you do. And, um, and anyway, so thank you for your, your sacrifices. And, and I'm, and so I'm so sorry you're having a tough time. And, and also I want you to know that it's to be expected. You're essentially going to war every day. And that really takes its toll on us. And of course your PTSD symptoms are, are coming back and flaring up. So going to therapy is great, but there's a couple of things that I want you to do to maybe help. And hopefully this will help soothe your system and help you feel some sense of kind of control, or at least a sense of reprieve from your, your intense job. And the first is 
talking with your other coworkers about how hard it is. I know it sounds like, well, it's not what we want to talk about. We want to be lighthearted about it. And I've talked about this a little bit before that, um, sorry, got myself all worked up. <clears throat> but there's a lot of research to support how when we share in trauma and grief, that we actually feel better. And it might sound weird to say that, but that's kind of the healing power of group therapy, the healing power of AA and NA, as well as like why we have funerals, right? And why we have get togethers over uh, tough things, you know, um, like I remember my mom talking about when Elvis died of all things, how like the, it felt like the entire world cried about it and was sad and it felt good to people to share in that. Not that we feel good feeling bad. I don't want you to mix that up and think that I'm saying it's good that we're feeling shitty. I'm saying that when we share in it, it doesn't feel as bad. It It's actually soothing to our system. And I want you to utilize the people that you work with as a resource for this. Or if there's Facebook groups of people who are frontline workers who can talk about it and share, I don't want you to ruminate and like fall down this rabbit hole, but I want you to be able to vent in a real way with people who get it. Because even though your therapist can help support, like I could talk to you all day about it and listen and wow, that must be hard and cry with you, but I'm not there. I don't really get it. I can't. It's not possible. Like, there, you know, even as a therapist, I can hold space for my patients and things, but I don't know what what it feels like every day when you go into work and the fear and the overwhelm that you might feel. And so <clears throat> being able to talk to people who do get it is really powerful. And I don't want you to underutilize that resource. So that's something. And then I want you to try to shake it out. <laughs> and I know that sounds silly, but we're trying to get you that connection, right? And that place to talk to people. Um, And at least you're seeing your family still and stuff like that and getting that kind of connection. But the people who really get it and talk, venting about it, I think you'll feel whew, so much better. But when you get up in the morning and when you get you know, out of the shower or whatever, and you're putting on your scrubs, I want you to do a full body shake when you're when you're fully dressed or right before you put on your clothes. We're going to shake it all out from our toes all the way up to the top of our head and back and down. And it sounds really weird. And I know I've talked about this a lot, but I know that people probably haven't done it because it sounds so strange. But trust me when I tell you, it does make you feel better and it takes off, it takes the edge off. So do that shake. And then when you have your break at lunch at work, I want you to shake again. And then when you finish your shift, I want you to shake again. And it sounds maybe like a little bit too much shaking, but trust me when I tell you that doing that, regulating our nervous system, I'm shaking right now if you're just listening to audio, that's why my voice sounds weird. Shake it out and getting all that energy ooh, off the tips of your fingers and out your arms and out of your body. That stress that you're feeling, that fight flight, those PTSD symptoms that are coming back, they're just stuck cycling in our body. And it can feel like there's no real action. Like you talked about being trapped, which is like the freeze state. And what we're trying to do is keep ourselves out of that freeze state. We want to pull it back up into our resilient zone, right? We don't want to be in fight flight. We don't want to be in freeze. We want to stay in this middle space. And shaking maybe not won't throw us back into that middle space, but it will at least move us a little bit in that right direction. And so we just want to utilize that to, you know, to our benefit. So shake, 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 shake. And I guess my last bit of, of advice is be compassionate with yourself. You're going, you're going to war every day for 12 hours. Any person, regardless, someone without any PTSD in their past, everyone is having a hard time with this. Everyone feels overwhelmed. And so when you have those negative thoughts come in your head, <clears throat> sorry, again, I got myself all worked up. 
when you have those negative thoughts come in your head about like, you know, I'm so trapped, this is terrible, it's never going to get better, I'm going to get someone sick, am I going to die, all those worry thoughts that are spiraling, I want you to stop them, say stop, 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 and then replace them with, you know, I don't even expect them to be positive, but to be like, I'm doing the best I can. I don't know what the future is going to hold, but I'm going to still take precautions. I'm going to do what I can. And it's okay for me to feel like shit right now. It's okay for me to feel overwhelmed. It's okay for me to want to cry randomly. It's okay. I want you to just give yourself permission. It's okay. You're holding it together for everybody right now. And that's too much. So it's okay to fall apart. Sometimes it's okay on your days off to just want to lay in bed. It's so exhausting. I give you permission. You're going, you're in war right now. This isn't regular life. This isn't what it's going to be like, hopefully for much longer. I'm hopeful, you know, that we're looking on like, I know this doesn't sound like very soon, but in six months, hopefully things are not where they are now. Um, so yeah, I, I wish I had better advice, but those are just the things that we can do. Um, yeah. And again, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. And hopefully people will take it seriously. You guys stay home. Don't see people. I know it sucks. Trust me. It fucking sucks for Sean and I right now, but I'm doing it because we're putting other, we're putting stress on other people by us just acting in a selfish manner. And I know there's people are trying to make it political or whatever. And that's just hogwash. That's bullshit. I don't believe in that at all. It's really that I don't want people to get sick and die. And that's it. I have tons of people in my life who've gotten sick. Some are in suffering from what's called long COVID, which if you want to look that up, do yourself a favor and learn about what it can do to you. Enlarged heart, it can cause a scarring to your lungs um, and all sorts of stuff. And then we have our frontline workers who are working around the clock to try to keep people alive and having to deal with the devastation. So I think you and I can suck it up and not see people obviously if our mental health is deteriorating, it's a serious thing and you should safely, you know, get tested, quarantine and then see people. But we need to take those precautions just so, so we're all better, right? It's, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about all of us. We're all connected and I don't want to get you sick and I don't want to get sick. And you know, that's really all there is to it. So thank you again for all of your work. You're, you're, you're doing the best you can. And that's, that's more than enough. Okay. Question number six says, Hey, Katie, could you please say some calming therapisty things in your therapist voice? <laughs> I often listen to your podcast to calm down and remind myself of my own therapist in between sessions. But recently, my anxiety levels are through the roof and listening um, to all of these problems that others have is triggering the shit out of me. Could you please say some trigger free calming things, please? I was trying to think of things to say when I saw this question because a lot of people are like, yeah, I would like that too. Um, it's like therapist ASMR or something. I don't know. But I guess um, I'll just I'll try to come up with some things and hopefully it's soothing to your system. The first thing I say a lot to my patients is like, you know, don't worry, it's going to get better. We're just in a tough time right now, but we have some tools, we have some resources, and we're going to rise above. We're going to get through this. We've got to keep going. Something like that. Um, I could say something like, I say this on the channel all the time, is with the right help and support, it can and will get better. Or um, sometimes we fall down, you know, but don't worry. It's a process, not perfection. We just get back up. We dust ourselves off and we try again. It's another thing. Um I hear you. I see you. It's going to be okay. We're going to get through this. I know it's just a tough time. 
also a therapist thing say, you know, we say things like, oh my God, I'm so proud of you. That's amazing. You finally were able to do that thing that you didn't think you could do. You used your tools, you used your resources, you calmed your system down and you communicated. That is awesome. You're doing amazing. I don't really know you guys. It's hard to come up with these things. They kind of just, they happen organically in my sessions. Um, but I think I say them in every podcast. So those are just some calming therapisty things. Uh, is there anything else, you guys? I'm I'm racking my brains. Um, I mean, something I always say is, be curious about that and try to journal out what you learn. <laughs> I don't know if that's calming though. <laughs> okay, let's move into question number seven. It says, hi, Katie, I feel scared. The therapeutic relationship slash emotional closeness is making me terribly afraid. I've known my therapist for years now, and I'm terrified because all I can think about is eventually she will leave. Therapy has to end at some point. This is causing two things. Number one, can't let her in. I'm terribly guarded and don't want her to get too close. Number two, at the same time, I constantly self-sabotage and act out in ways so that she will not leave me or stop caring. This seems like such a vicious cycle, and I'm wondering if there is a way out. I know therapy is there to help me get better, but therapy seems to be a major trigger. My therapist says says that I have an attachment trauma. That she is correct. What does that mean? Is that the reason for all of this anxiety and frantic abandonment fears? Mm-hmm. I want her to care about me, but I'm just too scared she'll leave me. I hope this makes some kind of sense. This totally makes sense. And a lot of people have attachment-based trauma. We could also have borderline personality disorder, both of which come with this intense and overwhelming fear of abandonment, thinking that we're going to let people in. They're going to get too close. We're going to become dependent on them. And then we're too vulnerable, right? They could leave and we're afraid we'd be too devastated to deal with it. So, okay. There are a couple things. First of all, I would encourage you to talk. I mean, you talk to your therapist about this, but I would encourage you to ask your therapist if she will uh, work with you through the dialectical and behavioral therapy workbook. Now, DBT or dialectical behavior therapy is what you're going to need because what it allows us to do is it allows us to learn how to recognize when we're feeling this sense of overwhelm because that's what you're feeling is completely overwhelmed and you're dysregulated is what we call it where it's like you're you're living in emotion mind we aren't able to see like the future of events or plan things out all we see is like threat threat fear overwhelm abandonment uh, we, and we're like sounding the alarm, like our brain is like constantly sounding the alarm. And so in order to get that to calm down, we have to be a little bit more mindful of what's going on in our body. And when we, when we're starting to feel this way, and as the system builds and gets overwhelmed, what can we do to calm it down? So mindfulness techniques allow us to recognize those things and then have some, some different tools through things like uh, emotion regulation skills uh, would be one of them. There's, there's a ton of things with DBT, like we could talk about interpersonal effectiveness and uh, other things, but emotional re- emotion regulation will be really key for you because we need you to soothe, be able to soothe your system and calm down enough that you don't do what you're doing now. Because what you're doing now is just acting out of emotion mind and kind of like throwing a tantrum and you're sabotaging because you don't... Um, you want to make sure that you keep her around. Like I've had patients do this tons of times over the years where they'll start getting better and I'll start, you know, telling them like, that's so awesome. I'm glad you're you know, doing well and blah, blah, blah. And then they get afraid they're going to get too quote unquote well that I'm just going to discharge them as if they don't have a say or it's not a process. Um, 
but they get so scared of that, then they start doing really like terribly because they want to stay in therapy. <laughs> I actually had a patient have that backfire on her because she did so terribly that then I was like, I think you need a higher level of care. And that was, so it was, you just have to recognize that where this is coming from, acknowledge the fact that either we have borderline personality disorder or, you know, we have like an attachment-based trauma, both also just know that attachment-based trauma can turn into BPD. I'm just putting these out separately because they don't always occur together. Um, but maybe we had our caretaker um, not be there for us, or maybe we had a lot of repeated traumas in our life that led to us not feeling like our environment is safe and that people around us will take care of us. And so we always think that people aren't going to be there and we can't count on them, but we need them, right? Because we're human. We need connection. We need relationships. We need to feel soothed. And it's this like, uh, it's not safe, but I need it feeling that causes that extreme emotion dysregulation and discomfort that we, we usually sabotage. We usually leave people before they can leave us. Um, or we can become really in, intensely dependent on someone, and then we get scared that we do, and then we then we leave. It's it's a very interesting kind of up and down, up and down, and very uncomfortable way to live life. And I'm sure that you're feeling really uncomfortable. And so I would talk to your therapist about it. I would pick up um, in my Amazon. I have an Amazon shop, so it's easy for you guys to find the books that I mention. It's Amazon.com forward slash shop s h o p forward slash Katie Morton, and they should all pop up. And you'll see it's like a green and white. Uh, dialectical beha- or dialectical behavior therapy workbook. I think the authors are McKay and someone else. Um, it's a great book and it's great to work with your therapist on it. And there's tons of worksheets you can buy um, or your therapist can copy. And I have, you know, like I have a ton of other books that have worksheets only that kind of reference to these different skills. And so there's a lot of homework we can do. But there are some basic things that I want you to do to kind of lower your emotional sensitivity. Because if we're feeling so dysregulated, there are things that we can do that are basic needs that we can meet so that we at least are setting ourselves up a little bit more for success so we don't feel so volatile all the time and so kind of out of control because that's kind of the sense that I get from this. And so making sure that we are eating well-rounded meals every three to four hours, we're not restricting ourselves or forgetting to eat and then binge eating on junk food or we're not only eating like one kind of food. Like I hear from a lot of my patients, they'll be like, well, I just bought a bunch of these sandwiches and froze them. And then I just heat them up in the microwave. And I'm like, I don't want you eating the same thing all day, every day. We need a well-rounded diet so that we feel our best. I want you to have a protein, a veggie and a starch. Okay. I'm not a dietitian, but I'm just saying you need to have some variance in your diet. Make sure you're eating regularly. Make sure you get enough sleep. Are you allowing yourself to sleep for, you know, seven and a half hours to maybe 10, depending on what your need is. Okay. We're not oversleeping, not undersleeping. We're getting like pretty normal amounts of sleep. Then are we drinking enough water? Are we engaging socially with people in a way that feels good? I know COVID makes things a little bit differently, but we, you know, are we taking our prescribed medication as we're supposed to? Are we taking care of any physical illnesses we have? Going to the doctor, getting things checked out, whatever that is. I do worry about that with COVID that people aren't going to the doctor for regular things. And I would encourage you to make those appointments and do those things. Get your regular checkups. Um, but those basic showering regularly, I want you to take care of those basic needs because that will lower our emotional sensitivity, at least even if it's just a couple of ticks down, it will just lower it enough that we have a little bit more resiliency to manage this 
tell your therapist, pick up that workbook and start going through it. It can get better. We can get better at managing our symptoms, whatever it is. If it is borderline, trust me, I have tons of patients who are have borderline personality disorder and are able to manage this emotional upset, recognize when it's happening, use their tools, you know, tap into their wise mind, not run you know, only let their emotion mind run the show. It is possible. So just hang in there, do the homework. I know it's hard. We're going to feel really uncomfortable. But what we end up doing by doing this work is proving to ourselves and our nervous system that not everyone's going to leave us, that people can leave in healthy, happy ways, and we can actually be okay with it. We're proving to ourselves that all these like false beliefs we have about abandonment, people are always just going to leave us, we can prove them wrong. But it, 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 we have to kind of fight back against ourselves and it can feel really uncomfortable. So stick with it. It does get better. But I believe those are the tools that are really going to help you the most. And they're all of the things within DBT are great. But I think that emotion regulation as well as the mindfulness component will be really key to your healing. Um, but it does get better. And know that your therapist isn't like, not that you're going to believe me, but your therapist isn't just going to leave you. That's not how therapy works. When we discharge someone, it's either because they're doing really, really well, and we've talked about it, and we've lowered sessions, and things are still going well. And then, you know, we process the ending of it. And you can always come back too, by the way. But then we, you know, I release you, you fly, little bird, you go. But if you have trouble, you come back for a few sessions. That's how that works. If you need a more intensive treatment. If you're not doing well, you're on the other end of the spectrum. Then we talk about that. We talk about what treatment options there are. And when you're done with that more intensive treatment, you come out and you get back into seeing your therapist. So again, they don't abandon you. They're there, but they're just getting you the right help. And then there's also the referral, meaning if you need more intensive trauma work and your therapist isn't a trauma specialist, they would tell you about that. They'd be like, I feel like I'm kind of in over my head and we're not really getting better. So maybe we look into some other trauma care. And that could be adjunctive, meaning adding it on to your current therapy, or it could be something where you're kind of referred out to see someone. And if you wanted to, after you did the trauma work, you could come back to see your therapist. There's nothing to prevent that. It doesn't just end. Okay. That's very unethical. Usually give patients at least a month, if not, you know, 90 days or something like that to kind of plan and prepare and discharge. So just to give you some context. Okay, let's move into question number eight. It says, how can I wire my brain to do something despite my fears or negative thoughts? I struggle with executing my plans because I'm terrified that something might go wrong. I always end up stuck in going through the motions. I lose motivation and interest and go back to square one of trying to get myself motivated to do or want something again. What can I do to give myself that big push and feel okay with the risks? Best thing we can do is first of all, find ways to kind of, it's, it's not even like calm your system down, but we have to find ways to like assuage the fears. Meaning, is it kind of more positive self-talk or more balanced self-talk that like, because I tell myself this too, like we were launching those anxiety pillows, those fluffy pillows we, that we're sold out right now, but uh, Denise is going to try to make the black ones. She's just, uh, just ordered the fabric the other day. So anyways, um, when we were launching those, I was like, well, what's the worst thing that happens is that I put these out and people don't like them and they don't buy them. Okay. So that's the risk I take. And actually nothing's really lost. Yeah, I lost money on it, but but it'll be okay. I, if you don't take a risk, you won't, you know, you won't be able to bring some new things out for people, right? You, you don't know if you don't take the risk. And so walking yourself through, like, first of all, like the balanced thoughts are helpful. And then I think because you kind of worry so much that something might go wrong, 
and lose motivation and interest. I think uh, we the CBT tool called Play It Out could be really helpful for you where you imagine yourself doing it. And what's the worst case scenario? I want you to imagine it from beginning to end. What's the worst case scenario? What's the best case scenario? Like rose colored glasses, everything works out wonderfully. And then what's probably the most likely? Because usually the worst case scenario doesn't, like if we're talking statistically speaking, it's not usually the worst. It's not usually the best. It's somewhere in the middle. So what's that? And I want you to think about that. And I want you to think it from beginning to end, all of those scenarios. And even just thinking it out can kind of calm us down and make us realize, well, worst case scenario, like I was doing with the pillows, worst case scenario is nobody buys them. I, you know, spent these thousands of dollars, but it's okay. I, I can deal with that. And maybe, maybe they sell, sell slowly or, you know, maybe I donate them, you know, okay, worst case scenario. Okay. Could I live with that? Would that be okay? Would that it wouldn't make us broke, would it? No, okay. You know, you you have to play things out in your head to give you some perspective and allow you to have like a more balanced thought about it. And that could really, really help. And then also the thought stopping and coming up with more balanced thoughts will really be helpful too. And and what that means is when you find yourself rolling in those negative thoughts where you're like, oh my God, everything's gonna ru- be ruined. This is never gonna work. I'm never gonna get to be successful and do this and blah, 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 blah you have to recognize when you're doing that and not allow those thoughts to continue, whether you have to say stop, 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 or whether you have to do something else to pull your brain out of that spiral, whatever it is, we're going to have to find some ways to stop that and then do that stuff more. And then once we've stopped those thoughts from like spinning at 100 miles an hour, we have to come in with a more balanced thought again, kind of like back to what's the worst case, which is what those negative thoughts are. Then what's the best case? The balanced ones are right in the middle. So it'd be something like, you know, it's possible this wouldn't work out, but it is also equally as possible that it will. I don't actually have facts on either side of this. I'm just making assumptions. That's a more balanced thought. Or maybe it's like, it's possible it won't go just like as badly as I think. It could be like not quite as shitty, maybe just a little bit shitty. That's more balanced and I'll take it. And I want you to try working it's those bridge statements. Balanced thoughts are like kind of building that bridge, right? We're building a bridge from the negative thoughts that you're stuck in right now to a more positive place. Now, I don't believe that all of us have to always have all these positive thoughts. Like we should have concerns about starting new things and trying new things because it's a risk, right? And it's okay to have some worries, but the worries don't run the show. We don't allow them just to live in our brain, ruining things. We can acknowledge them we can adjust things as needed, right? If I'm like, okay, well, maybe instead of trying to produce a thousand of those pillows, because I didn't produce that many, by the way, you guys, I can afford to produce a hundred and that won't be stressful for me. So that's what we did, right? Because then if nobody buys them, I'm not in the poorhouse. So there are things you can do to try to set yourself up more for success. And so some of those things are like, okay, well, I do recognize that that is a worry. I'm gonna take some action to fix that. Okay, good. Right. And so I think that those are just some of the things that you can do. And then if it gets overwhelming and you're so afraid, it's like an intense worry about it going wrong. Oh, I want you to, you know, slowly do some like exposure therapy around it. Okay. Like let's imagine it again. It's like the playing it out. We can imagine us giving the presentation or doing that thing or starting that whatever. And, you know, how would we manage that? And okay, if it didn't quite go as planned, what could we do? You can play that out a little bit and and in your head, imagine it happening so that you realize it's not as scary or the worst case scenario is not as terrible as we maybe thought or made it up to be. Because to be honest, usually in our brain, 
99.9% of the time, what we think is going to happen and what we freak out about is not in any way close to what actually takes place. And so if we can just play that out and pay attention, I really don't think, I think you'll realize like, oh, it's actually not that scary. And that's what we're trying to prove to your brain is it's not as scary as we think. And so that is it. And then truthfully, if you make a plan, we do these things, we put together, what's our timeline on this? We're going to do all the tools I said. Then if you set a deadline, then you just got to do it. Sometimes we just have to rip off that bandaid and go for it. But um, doing those things leading up to it should help you feel a little bit better. Okay, let's move on to question number nine. And that question says, Dear Katie, please accept some socially distanced holiday cheer and my personal gratitude for all that you do on both of your channels. Of course, I love how that was worded. So sweet. My question is about the working alliance between my therapist and I. Can you please describe how a client can create or fix their alliance with their therapist? My therapist and I were recently on the verge of termination for administrative and not therapeutic reasons. Um, for example, so she could be freed up to see other patients who are on the wait list, which has temporarily been lifted. Oh, that's awesome. For the next four months, I've been tasked with making therapy a safe place and proving that I can trust my therapist again and more to continue therapy. I'm having a hard time making a plan to do so, even though I agree with the goal, in part because of how close to the verge of unjustified closure or administrative abandonment we were. Is there any advice that you can give me on ways that therapists build safety and trust? I'm hoping I can pilfer a few useful ones. Sending love from the Big Apple. Of course. And I'm so sorry that that was happening. I know that some therapists are doing stuff like this where we're in clinics. They're kind of forcing limits on sessions for people because the wait lists are hugely long and crazy. Um, Yeah, so I understand that, but that doesn't mean that it feels good. So truthfully, okay, so the way to... Start building safety and trust is really to process what happened because we can't just ignore it and try to work towards this goal of trusting our therapist again and being able to continue therapy. We have to process the worry and the the fear and be able to talk about it and express how you felt in a way. It's like asserting yourself in the worry and stress that you experienced and being able to have your therapist hold that and tell you that they understand and they can even apologize and they can um, just listen, really. I would tell your therapist maybe ahead of time, like, hey, I don't need you to explain why it happened because that's not helpful. I don't find that to be helpful personally. Unless you you find that helpful for you, then let your therapist do that. But I find sometimes as a therapist, if I try to explain why something happened, like, well, you weren't doing as well. And so I had to refer you out for a higher level of care. And that's like a wound in the relationship. They already know that. And me saying it can feel very invalidating, or kind of like I'm minimizing what took place. And so instead, it can be more healing for a therapist, you can you can ask your therapist for this, it can be more healing for you to have your therapist just hear you out, validate how you felt, and just hold the space and allow you to be upset. Okay, and so you can ask your therapist to do that, like, hey, I don't need you to tell me why. I really just need to vent about how it felt and have you hear me and have you hold the space for that so that I can move past it. Because if we don't process what took place and grieve what happened and and acknowledge the upset, we won't be able to move past it. And so that that's really how that is. And then as far as building safety and trust, when it comes to something like this, it's just going to be consistency and reliability. So your therapist will have to be candid about what's happening or like they already kind of did. But letting you know that like, 
they have unlimited sessions. There's many sessions as you want, you can have access to. They need to be able to tell you something like that. And you need to be able to talk about that. And then they need to show up for you at the time that, you know, not rescheduling and not canceling and all of that can be super triggering again. So it's kind of having that candid conversation about it and then following that up with some reliability and some, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like, positive and supportive behaviors of what they're saying, right? It's like, we're not just giving you lip service, we're actually acting on it. And we need to see that sometimes too. And that's really it. Um, but you have to communicate what you felt and and you have to speak up and then we have to feel heard. And so that's really the process that I want you to kind of uh, explore. And so it's not that you can trust like coming up with that goal is great okay we want to trust and work with therapist again but like that's not on you to like write about how you're going to do that that's a, a relationship building there was definitely you know a a damage that was done to the therapeutic alliance and so we have to repair it and so that's those are my thoughts on that um hopefully it's helpful now let's hop into question number 10 and it says hi katie i hope you're doing great thank you i am says, I want to ask, how can I deal with being attracted and falling for older people? I was sexually abused as a little girl since the age of six till I turned eight. I've been in therapy off and on since I was 11. Now that I'm 21, I realize that I tend to fall for people who are much older than me. Right now, I like a woman who's 15 years older than me. We uh, were both actresses. And lately, I've been getting kind of really close to her. I feel so connected to her and that I can talk with her about stuff I could never uh, I never could with anyone, but I really don't know if she would ever like me back like that. I felt things, but the context makes them confusing. I honestly feel that I connect better with older people, but part of me feels guilty about it. And also sometimes it even makes me feel like I'm not enough for anyone to like me back. I hope this makes sense and sorry for any mistake. English isn't my first language. Thank you for everything. Lots of love from Venezuela. Um, your English is impeccable and amazing. So when we're sexually abused, at a young age, it's usually by someone older than us by quite a bit. And that can confuse us in the way that we view relationships and love, especially romantic relationships. And my guess is that that is what is happening. And so <clears throat> I would also maybe guess that it, it potentially was difficult for you to ever like someone your own age, because maybe it wasn't uh, something that was attractive to you or the dynamic was weird for you, like things could have felt uncomfortable. And what really what I want you to do right now, and I think this is kind of like the first step in this healing process, is I want you to be curious about that. And be curious about if you met someone that was your own age, what is it about that that like isn't attractive? Or what is it about that is attractive? I want you to just be curious and kind of write out and journal about what older, what we're thinking these older people have that people your own age don't. And it's not that we can't date people that are older than us. Sean's eight years older than me. Um, however, it can often be tied to, if it's like, you know, 15 years, 30 years older, it can be tied to abuse in some way, because we could connect that to our sexual abuse of our past, thinking that that's the only way romantic love reveals itself. And that's the only type of relationship that I know. And it's kind of in those formative years, I mean, you were very, very young and not obviously at that age where we aren't even thinking about sex. And unfortunately, you know, that was in, like that was put on to you and you were harmed by it too early. And so it's like we never got that period of time in our life and like our 
kind of teenage, early tween teen years where we get to kind of figure out what attractiveness is and who we have crushes on and what's okay and not okay for us and who, you know, we get to kind of explore. You were never given that chance. You were already almost like told what it was going to be like. And so we want to just be curious about that and dig into it because my bet, if I was a betting woman, I would bet that being in therapy and processing through this trauma when we feel like there's no emotional charge left with it, and we've kind of processed it through and we've healed our, we're able to have a healthy, happy sex life. So it's like you heal that sexual trauma in a way that then you're able to have sex, uh, consensual sex with someone and have a healthy relationship that way. When we get to that point, we most likely will recognize that older people aren't really attractive to us. I mean, some people might be like, people are attractive just because people are attractive. But we won't only be attracted to people who are older, we'll be attracted to qualities of good people and what we know we're looking for. And we probably haven't had an opportunity to do that work yet, right? It's like, we're just talking about the trauma, we're trying to heal it. But we haven't even gotten into how you can go out in the world and have healthy, happy relationships moving forward. And I cannot recommend enough the Courage to Heal workbook. It's an amazing book. It's also in my Amazon store. So amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton, you should be able to see it in there. It's a yellow book. Um, it's a great book. I don't know if it's translated into Spanish. I would assume so. I think it would be foolish not to translate that book into Spanish. Um, but if you have any issues, let me know. But I think that that would be a great book to pick up. It kind of walks you through all this healing. It's something I would encourage you to work on with your therapist. Don't do it alone. It's very intensive. Um, but that could also move you in that direction as well. But that, those are just my thoughts about it. I think a lot of times when we have abuse in our past, we can associate our abusers with certain things. And when it comes to sexual abuse, we can think, well, that's what romantic love looks like. That's what this is supposed to be. And find ourselves only attracted to people, you know, who are a lot older, because that's what it looked like at that point. But it can, we can get over it, we can move past it, and we can go on to have happy, healthy, loving, and consensual relationships. And don't worry. And you can still be attracted to people who are older than you. I don't want anybody to think like, oh, you can't be attracted to people older, but it, it shouldn't be exclusive. Like, it's more about the person. I want you to work in therapy to find out what it is that you really love and like about people and qualities that are super triggering that we don't want to be around or things about, you know, like trust is really important. So if someone breaks that trust, that relationship isn't going to work for me. Like those are things that you can, you know, those are qualities and boundaries that we can place and we can operate out of. And that's, that's very, very healthy. Thank you so much for listening. Please share this podcast with anybody you think that it could help. Please leave me reviews on any, wherever you listen to your podcast, if they allow you to do, I think Spotify and Apple allow reviews, but wherever else, please uh, leave us reviews. Let me know what you think and how it's going and have a wonderful holiday. Uh, enjoy some time off. Hopefully you get to relax and recharge. I love you all and I will see you next week. Bye. Or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always